Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Morning, everyone. They're calling it hump day in the studio. It's just Wednesday. It's like the best commercial ever. Remember the camel? He runs around, he's like, Mike, 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 Mike. Hump day? <laughs> My producer said it's Trump day because there's a big Trump town hall tonight I've on heard. CNN. I've heard that's a thing. Questions from Caitlin and New Hampshire voters. And we have a lot ahead before that. Phil's here. Thanks for being here that's this morning. Right. Let's get started with five things to know for this Wednesday, May 10th. The New York jury has found former President Donald Trump liable for sexually abusing and defaming writer E. Jean Carroll, he has been ordered to pay her $5 million in damages. The former president is vowing to appeal. Also, President Biden said to hold another round of debt ceiling talks with congressional leaders on Friday after yesterday's meeting did not result in any meaningful progress. And federal prosecutors charging embattled New York Republican Congressman George Santos. Now, the nature of those charges are unclear, but we're told Santos could appear in court as early as today. And Tucker Carlson says he's relaunching his show on Twitter. Elon Musk, however, says no deal has been made and Carlson is still technically under contract with Fox. And meet the new top dog. (laughs) This year's best in show honors go to Buddy Holly. Also one of the best movies, best in show. Were you going to pronounce the name of the dog? (laughs) No, I'm not. CNN This Morning starts right now. Since you put me up to it, what's the name of the dog? Uh, we have the pronunciation. Because I printed it. Which you printed, which I appreciate. I'm just going to go with dog. Uh, <laughs> winning winning dog. We'll go with Buddy Holly. Puda Basse Griefun Vadeon. Look at you. How was that? Just advanced. Look at that. Look it's at good that. Good looking pop. Um, all right, we'll get to that in a minute, but we do start out with very serious, very consequential news. New overnight, former President Trump lashing out at the jury that found that he sexually abused and defamed writer E. Jean Carroll. He was still posting on social media after midnight, calling the jurors partisan. What else can you expect from a Trump-hating, Clinton-appointed judge speaking to and in control of a jury from an anti-Trump area, which is probably the worst place in the United States for me to get a fair trial? I don't even know who this woman is. I have no idea who she is, where she came from. This is another scam. No, it was an anonymous jury, by the way, in this trial. So we'll get into all of that. Uh, The jurors ordered Trump to pay $5 million in damages to Carol. Federal jury found the former president sexually abused her in a dressing room in a Manhattan department store in the mid-90s and then defamed her last year when he called her a con job. This was a civil trial, so Trump was not criminally charged or technically convicted of anything. CNN's senior legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed, is here to explain all of it. Um, Good morning. Uh, Good morning. Your coverage yesterday was excellent when when this broke, really explaining everything at issue here and what the jury found. And again, I said it's an anonymous jury. So those, those attacks from the former president come without basis on the jurors. 
That's right. And it's unlikely that we're ever going to learn too much about this jury or how they assess the evidence, because even though it's their right to speak out publicly, the judge encouraged them to remain anonymous. Now, the former president's team making a lot about the fact that they did not find him, him having raped E. Jean Carroll. But they had three different types of battery to consider. Rape, sex abuse, or forcible touching. And the definition of sexual abuse is sexual contact without consent. But the definition of rape is sexual intercourse without consent. So it's clear that this jury believed whatever happened in that department store may not have actually been intercourse. But at this point, you know, this is him being found liable for sexual assault, for battery. And though dozens of women have accused him of sexual assault, this is the first time it's been affirmed by a jury. Eugene Carroll was all smiles walking out of a Manhattan federal courthouse Tuesday after a jury awarded her $5 million in her defamation case against former President Donald Trump. In a statement, Carroll saying, this victory is not just for me, but for every woman who has suffered because she was not believed. It's really hard to come forward about these things. And especially hard when the uh, the, the man you're talking about is, is very powerful. Natasha Stoinoff and Jessica Leeds both testified during the trial about their alleged altercations with Trump, which he denies, and they both praised this verdict. When I heard the verdict today, I felt that nothing is more powerful than the truth. I am very pleased uh, for Jean. I'm very pleased for the whole situation. Trump responded to the verdict by posting this video to social media. This was a very unfair trial. That's all you have to say. This was a very unfair trial. The civil trial lasted 10 days, with the jury deliberating just under three hours. Trump has denied all wrongdoing and said he didn't even know Carol. I have no idea who this woman is. However, he made these comments during his pre-trial deposition played for the jury. I think she's a whack job. She's not my type. What you're saying there is um, Ms. Carroll fabricated um, her claim that you sexually assaulted her, correct? Yes, totally. Okay. 100%. Now, that's the only time the jury heard from Trump during the trial, other than clips from the infamous Access Hollywood tape that surfaced right before the 2016 presidential election. Carroll's team used that now infamous video to establish Trump having a pattern of this kind of behavior, playing portions again during closing arguments. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. <laughs> I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. That's what you said, correct? Well, historically, that's true with stars. Not always, but largely true. Unfortunately or fortunately. Trump's attorneys calling his loss a result of politics. He's firm in his belief, as many people are, that he cannot get a fair trial in New York City. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, a Trump ally, also criticized the verdict. I think the New York legal system's off the rails when it comes to Donald Trump. But Republican Senator Mitt Romney didn't hold back. I hope the, uh, the jury of the American people uh, reach the same conclusion about Donald Trump. He just is not suited to be president of the United States. 
This was a civil trial. This is not a criminal case, so there's no consideration of jail time. This was about liability and financial penalties, as we saw, $5 million. And the former president's attorneys have vowed to appeal, but the likelihood of success of appealing this case, it's pretty slim. Why? It, historically, a case like this, with a civil case with a jury, with a unanimous finding on both battery and defamation, particularly when they opted not to even put on a defense. I mean, remember, former President Trump could have come. He could have testified. They even extended the deadline. He chose not to. So it's unlikely that they're going to succeed if they choose to appeal this, which they've said they're going to. Fascinating. Thank great you. Great reporting. Yeah, great reporting throughout the whole trial. Um, ahead in our 8 a.m. hour here, just a few hours from now, E. Jean Carroll's going to be here. She'll join us in studio with her attorney, Roberta Kaplan. Also this morning, more trouble, if you thought that was even possible, for embattled New York Congressman George Santos, as first reported by CNN. Now, the Republican lawmaker is expected in court in New York as soon as today after being criminally charged by federal prosecutors. The specific charges remain under seal, but Santos was reportedly under investigation for questionable campaign finances. Santos has been facing intense scrutiny and calls to resign ever since it was revealed he lied about his heritage, education, and professional background, and like 50 other things too, it seemed like. CNN's Bryn Gengrass, live in New York, outside the courthouse with more. And Bryn, what do we think these charges relate to at this point? Yeah, it's still unclear, as you said, Phil, because that indictment is still under seal. But our colleagues, Mark Morales, Evan Perez, reporting that George Santos, the Republican congressman who just took office in January, could, as soon as today, appear in the courthouse behind me uh, in front of a judge on these charges. And, of course, we're looking to get uh, more details about that. But if you remember, CNN has reported late last year federal prosecutors were looking into the personal finances of George Santos. How does he make his money and specifically how did he loan uh, more than seven hundred thousand dollars uh, to his 2022 successful campaign there's also been scrutiny about expenditures by his campaign so these are all things that are possibly on the table what's led up to today is still very unclear but phil we do know that the congressman did not vote in a house vote according to sources last night Get on, he did get on a plane and headed here to new york so again we do expect him possibly uh, as soon as today now, Bryn, I think the congressman has become kind of a punchline in Washington, a late night talk show host punchline as well. This is a reminder that this stuff is very serious, but there's also been a lot of it. Can you remind us how we got here in the first place, kind of the scale of the lies that we're told? Oh, yeah, there's a lot of material, Phil, right? But, yeah, the, this is serious. These are criminal charges that he is facing, and we'll get the details of, of that, hopefully, as the morning goes on. But certainly there has been a number of lies, fabrications that have surrounded this congressman uh, after he uh, was voted into office. The fact about his heritage, saying that he was Jewish, which isn't true. The fact that he allegedly uh, stole from a nonprofit that was made to help a, a military member with their dog. Uh, the fact that his mother passed away in nine. 11, uh, his education, his work uh, history, that he worked for Citigroup uh, in Goldman Sachs. So uh, some of these he admits were, he was dishonest about. Other times uh, he has denied that he has lied. But certainly these are all surrounded the congressman. And now he's, as you mentioned, Phil, something more serious, facing criminal charges. That's right. Busy day ahead. Brendan Grass, thanks so much. President Biden and the four top leaders in Congress will give it another go on Friday as they race against the clock to raise the nation's debt ceiling or risk a catastrophic default, Biden says. He made it clear in yesterday's Oval Office meeting that default is not an option. 
The big question remains, can the president and the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, reach an agreement before it is too late? Our congressional correspondent, Lauren Fox, joins us now from Capitol Hill. It was, I think, disappointing for all Americans to see everyone come out of this meeting with, with admittedly no progress. Yeah, Poppy, one of the worst signs that you can see on Capitol Hill or outside the White House after a high-stakes meeting like the one that unfolded yesterday in the Oval Office is when everyone comes out and basically holds a press conference, answers reporters' questions, and that can be an indication that no real progress was made. That's exactly what happened inside the room yesterday. Folks, uh, welcome. The path to avoiding a catastrophic default still unclear, even after yesterday's hour-long Oval Office meeting. I didn't see any new movement. The president said the staff should get back together, but I was very clear with the president. We have now just two weeks to go. President Biden offering a different assessment. Everyone agreed that deficit to falling the debt is off the table. Oh, I know we have the time. I mean, we could do it easily if, they, if what do we have the will. Neither side appears to be budging. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy once again rejecting the president's call to pass a clean bill to lift the debt limit. Whatever goes forward is not just going to be raising the debt ceiling. It's going to be just like we did in the House. We will raise the debt ceiling with doing changes within our spending. House Republicans recently passed a bill to increase the debt limit by $1.5 trillion while cutting domestic programs to trim the deficit. It has no path, however, of passing the Democratic-controlled Senate. What's really troubling about the Speaker's position is it's a, it's a partisan bill and he says take it or leave it or we could default. President Biden contemplating a workaround to raise the debt ceiling without the help of Congress. I have been considering the 14th Amendment. And a man I have enormous respect for, Larry Tribe, who advised me for a long time, thinks that it would be legitimate. But the problem is it would have to be litigated. Meanwhile, Senate Republicans indicating they'll be staying on the sidelines with no plans to step in to try and broker a deal. It's time for the President of the United States to take action to make sure that we don't have a default in the debt. And over the next several days, Poppy, there are going to be negotiations among staff members. The hope, of course, that some kind of breakthrough can reveal itself. The principals will meet again on Friday, but there just isn't that much time left. And yesterday, Kevin McCarthy, the speaker, told reporters that he believed that a deal, at least in principle or some kind of framework, needed to be reached by next week, given the fact that this deadline could come as soon as June 1st. Yeah. Poppy? Okay, Lauren, thank you so much. You're, you're there. That's where you usually are. Yeah. What do you think happens here? I think that uh, the optimist take is in Washington, there's always a bad meeting before the good meeting. Okay. So I if, like that. if Friday is a productive meeting, and productive, I think people need to keep it within perspective. It's not going to be a deal or anything like that. But the staff level discussions over the next couple of days, if they start to circle around a framework that might work and leaders actually have a substantive conversation on Friday, um, then things are starting to move. If this is a bad meeting followed by a bad meeting, um, this, there's some problems. Yeah. All right, let's hope. 
Uh, that's one deadline. President Biden also facing another one. Now warning the southern border will be, quote, chaotic for a while when Title 42 ends. We'll take you live to a Texas border town that is bracing for a surge of migrants. Also, two NYU students shot and killed while vacationing in Puerto Rico. What we are learning about the suspect next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I spent uh, close to an hour with with the Mexican president today. Uh, We're doing all we can. Uh, The answer is uh, it remains to be seen. Uh, We've gotten overwhelming cooperation from Mexico, but it remains to be seen. It's going to be chaotic for a while. That was President Biden with a rather candid assessment last night of the situation at the border will be, quote, chaotic when a pandemic era COVID policy expires tomorrow. Now, Title 42 has allowed the U.S. to quickly expel migrants out of the country without an asylum hearing. It expires at 11.59 p.m. tomorrow night. Now, the number of migrants at the border is growing. The Fed's estimating about 155,000. That's not a typo. Migrants are waiting in shelters and in the streets of northern Mexico. CNN's Nick Valencia is live along the border in Brownsville, Texas. And Nick, we've all been kind of waiting for this moment. What are you seeing and what should we expect to see in the next 24 to 48 hours? Well, you heard the president there say that this is going to be difficult. And in the short term, border cities like the one I'm in here in Brownsville are really going to see the impact. And they already are just a short distance from the international bridge here uh, where migrants are brought after they're processed and released on humanitarian parole. You're seeing scenes like this of people sleeping on the streets. And those that we've spoken to here say that this started in the last week. Uh, City officials I've spoken to here are really worried that this number could increase. So that's why they say they're working with buses, airlines, as well as federal agencies to try to get migrants on to their next destination. They're also working with NGOs to try to create space for these migrants. But look, these, these NGOs, they're overwhelmed here. They're at capacity, taking in about 700 migrants per day. And just really quickly here, I've been speaking to a lot of these uh, nationals, Venezuelan nationals who are coming across here in recent days, and I asked them if they're aware of Title 42 ending. Uh, Some of them are, most of them aren't, but those that were don't really understand what it means. They think that Title 42 ending means that the border is going to shut down entirely. So one Venezuelan national I spoke to yesterday told me that he rushed to get here uh, thinking that the border would be closed, and he says many others uh, followed in suit. Phil? That's really good reporting. Nick, Nick Valencia down uh, at the border for us. Thanks so much. The U.S. has announced another billion-dollar security package for Ukraine as they prepare a counteroffensive. We'll discuss where the war stands with NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg joining us live ahead. New York University this morning is mourning two business students who were killed in Puerto Rico. The two students, both Peruvian nationals, were reportedly shot and killed outside a bar Saturday morning. Now, according to NYU, the two MBA students were bystanders caught in a fight between, between two unrelated groups. They were traveling with other students on a brief vacation. CNN first reported it, and this morning we're waiting to learn what charges federal prosecutors have filed against embattled New York Congressman George Santos. Three sources tell CNN the charges have been filed under seal. Santos is expected to appear in federal court. That could happen as soon as today. And that's when we could learn the exact nature of these charges. What we do know and can report is that the FBI and the Justice Department have been examining allegations of false statements in Santos's campaign finance filings. 
top Democrats and some Republicans have called on him to resign. Let's bring in Robert Zimmerman. He is a Democratic candidate who lost to Santos in the election in November. He's also a strategist for the Democratic National Committee. Good morning. Just to clarify, I'm a Democratic National Committeeman. It's a volunteer position I have with them. But good morning. It's good to be with you both. Do you know anything about what the charges are? I've heard a lot of speculation. I've read speculation as well that it focuses on his campaign finances. And that makes the most sense because nothing about his finances ever added up or made sense. But you needed the Department of Justice to step in and really do the kind of forensic work that was required. And it's quite encouraging. It's quite encouraging to see the system of justice move forward and our Department of Justice move really expeditiously at this point to to bring him to justice because our district's been betrayed. You know, you make the point, nothing about his campaign finances ever made sense. There's been a lot of litigation and relitigation inside Washington, inside kind of the National Democratic Party. Did they miss things? Should they have taken more advantage of some pretty clear signs that this was something Look, that was on the I resume? I tell you this. Yeah. Our, our campaign and the local media did everything they could to sound the alarm and draw attention around these issues. Then what we did was the best lacking? We could. I must tell you, the most important point right now, Phil, quite frankly... Yeah is moving forward and making sure he's George Santos is removed from Congress. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of finger pointing that's going on in Washington, but quite frankly, the finger pointing should be directed to the Republicans in Congress who refuse to remove him. But- because they're keeping him in Congress makes them accomplices to his crimes, and they're defending him, make them complicit in his behavior. But Robert, to Phil's good point, it is important to, oh, absolutely. to assess what wasn't done. Look, I've been through and a lot of pints I, of haagen trying to okay. figure it out. Okay? What kind? Sure. What's your oh, favorite? Oh, absolutely. Chocolate, <laughs> vanilla chocolate chip for sure, coffee and cookie dough right. dynamo. Okay. okay. Those are the standards. Okay. Well, all right, fine. But on a more serious note yeah. here, I think Phil's point is you have to look at what wasn't done. And if you look back at the DCCC press release in August of 22, it called Santos a conspiracy theorist, a flat-out liar, someone with a, quote, history of shady finances, someone who, quote, failed to file a personal disclosure form. It asked, what is Santos hiding? And it even said that he has Ponzi scheme ties and called him untrustworthy. There were clear red flags that the DCCC knew and shared with you and your team. And your campaign, yeah. And we shared with the media. Okay, but do you regret not digging more into that? Spending the money it would have taken to uncover some of this stuff. Poppy, let's be very clear. We did the best we could with our limited resources and limited time. We, I became, when I became the nominee, we had only over two, just a little over two months for the general election, and we had very little in the bank at the end of August well, when I became DCCC the nominee. Well, the decided my... against spending thirty dollars to $50,000 to well, pursue Well, you have it. to ask them about that. I can tell you, we took the information that was given us. We went to the media and did our best to sound the alarm, and a lot of local media did pick up these issues. But as many of your contributors on CNN have pointed out, Local congressional races get lost. The marquee races get all the attention. And that was one of the problems. We had an election year where the governor's race, the issue of crime was dominant. We lost four congressional districts because of that. But my point to you very simply is, obviously, we have to make sure going forward that we also, that we have to make sure very importantly going forward that we hold the Republicans accountable for keeping George Santos in Congress. That's really the bottom line here. I want to see much more aggressive uh, work done, and I want to see, and I think we have to invest in local media much more aggressively too to make sure they're supported. So let's talk about going forward. You mentioned the four seats that went Republican. I mean, sure. New York was the majority maker for Speaker Kevin. Absolutely McCarthy. right. There's no doubt about it. George Santos is one of those. Um, the other Republicans who flip seats or won Biden districts mm-hmm. in New York have all almost to a person come out and right. attack Santos. Said he should resign. Say, said he should be removed. It's very clear in the district the yeah. Republican leaders feel that way as well. He's clearly not going anywhere. The speaker has not asked for him to leave. Why? Well, you know, like at the end of the day, Kevin McCarthy is going to have to make a decision. 
about whether he wants to stand up for the integrity of his institution or protect George Santos. And it's very clear in a Republican Party where Donald Trump is the front runner for president and Marjorie Taylor Greene's in House leadership that they're not embarrassed by George Santos. And they don't feel the urgency to hold him accountable for the crimes and lies he's already committed. But you made an important point, Phil, in the earlier part of the show. He's, Santos is more than just a late night punchline or a Washington topic. We are suffering in our congressional district because we don't have a member of Congress. And we, have, and we don't have a, a congressional office that's addressing issues like affordability or getting funding in our district for infrastructure. Uh, these are critical issues, making our community safer. This is where we need a strong congressional voice. And that's what's so critical in our district. It's missing. I spend a good part of my time taking casework questions from so many constituents or local government groups that need assistance. And we're trying to help them. But this is serious business, not having a member of Congress who's addressing the real needs of the people of our district. Are you going to run again? You know, my only focus, Poppy, and we've talked about this before, is making sure that George Santos is expelled from Congress and holding those accountable who refuse to do it. And that's my focus. After that, we'll look look at the political agenda when we have a political agenda. Right now, it's about public service. Right now, it's about holding him accountable and holding the Republicans accountable to get him out. Do you think they know about local media? It was some of those smallest papers. They, they were breaking the news out. and writing right. the news. Were, and, we were, and I think and as, we much as, as much as there was an autopsy on the validity of Oppo Research, who had what files, who was doing yeah. what, it was also, I think, a national media looking around and saying, oh, this was actually reported. They miss? do break these oh, yeah. news We took those yeah. local stories and we sent them everywhere, gave them out door to door, distributed them everywhere we could. Yeah. It's, Obviously, it's, it was a frustrating time, but it's more important now to move forward and try to regain the integrity okay. of our system. Yeah, that's Robert Zimmerman. Thanks so much for coming in. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. And a quick programming note, Caitlin Collins will moderate an exclusive CNN town hall with former President Trump. It airs live tonight from New Hampshire at 8 p.m. Eastern. This morning, we are learning new details about a gunman who opened fire at that mall in Texas this weekend, murdering eight people more still in the hospital. We're live on the ground with what investigators have found. New this morning, we're learning of strikes in Gaza carried out by Israeli Defense Forces. Our Elliot Gottkind joins us from Jerusalem. Elliot, uh, what can you tell us? We, we've been hearing sirens blaring. Indeed, Poppy, uh, sirens sounding in the communities around the Gaza Strip and in cities such as Ashkelon, just a few kilometers north of the Strip. Uh, the CNN producer in Gaza telling us that uh, more than uh, six, uh, sorry, that uh, six rockets, more than six rockets were fired from the Gaza Strip towards Israel. And this breaks really this kind of uneasy calm that has uh, prevailed over Israel over the last 24 hours since Israel carried out those uh, airstrikes, killing three Islamic uh, Jihad uh, commanders and uh, also a number of the members of their families as well. Uh, so Israel has been waiting for the response. Those strikes yesterday, of course, were themselves in response, Israel says, to the more than 100 rockets that Islamic Jihad fired towards Israel from the Gaza Strip a week earlier. Now, a response had been expected. Uh, measures had been taken to prepare Israel. Reservists had been called up. Public bomb shelters had been opened. And in fact, the Home Front Command, after carrying out additional airstrikes this morning, it says to uh, take out Islamic Jihad members who were going to a rocket launch pad. Uh, they were told in those communities around the Gaza Strip to remain in their bomb shelters until further notice. But as I say, Israel has been braced for a response for the uh, killing for those airstrikes that killed the Islamic Jihad commanders from that militant group yesterday. This uh, is the first response that we've had from the Gaza Strip with rockets being fired towards Israel. I don't think anyone in Israel is under the illusion that these are the last. Poppy? 
Elliot, thank you for that reporting. Phil. Also this morning, we're learning new details about the man who opened fire at a Texas outlet mall, killing eight people. Officials say he had neo-Nazi ideation, including tattoos and patches. Now, in a news conference, investigators said the suspect had eight weapons with him at the outlet mall, three on him, another five in his car. All of them, they say, he bought legally. On Saturday afternoon, witnesses said they started hearing gunshots at the outlet mall. The gunman killed eight people and hurt seven others before an officer who was already at the mall shot and killed him. The police chief said the whole thing lasted about three to four minutes. Now, CNN's Josh Campbell joins us live from Allen, Texas this morning. Josh, at this point, do we have any idea, any word on what the motive has been? So we've been doing some reporting, uh, Phil, based on our sources, looking into the suspect's background. Uh, we've uncovered this really troubling online social media presence, uh, posts about right-wing extremism, about white supremacy, his obsession over Nazis and guns and past mass shootings. But authorities are not yet prepared to conclude a specific motive. They did provide an update yesterday. They said that they're still going through the suspect's digital devices, his social media, a regional FBI computer laboratory uh, is going through his that material. Material. They're still trying to get into his computer. But authorities did provide a little bit of information about uh, how that shooting went down and what they're looking at. Take a listen. We do know that he had neo-Nazi ideation. He had patches. He had tattoos. Uh, even his signature, you know, verified that. To me, it looks like he targeted the location rather than a specific group of people. He was very random in the people he killed. It didn't matter the age, uh, same race or sex. He just shot people. Now, authorities say that they believe that he acted alone, but again, the investigation continues. It's only been less than 96 hours since that attack happened at this mall behind me. Authorities say they still have a lot of work yet to do, Phil. Well, Josh, not taking away from the import of the investigation, but I do want to try and keep focus on the victims here, uh, the horrifying loss for family members, for those uh, who were killed. There was a lone boy who lost the members of his family. What do we know about him, about what's going to happen to his life going forward? Yeah, the victim certainly a front of mind for all of us, uh, even as that investigation continues. That young boy that you mentioned, six-year-old William Choi, he was here at this mall with his family. Among the eight that were killed were his parents, his mom and dad, as well as his three-year-old brother. Now, he went to hospital. Uh, he is out of the ICU. The family says that he is recovering, uh, but certainly you just have to feel for this young boy, this family of four, now a family of one. Now, we're also hearing amid all of this tragedy from authorities that there was also an incredible amount of bravery that was on display here. Uh, we had one person who's been on our air talking about rushing to the scene, trying to render first aid, CPR, save lives. We're also told that the Allen police officer who took down that shooter did so within about three to four minutes. And finally, one of those victims, 20-year-old Christian LaCour. He was a security guard here at the mall. We were told yesterday by authorities he died while trying to evacuate people to safety, trying to get them out of harm's way, Phil. Well, Josh Campbell, great reporting for us from Allen, Texas. Thanks so much. And a good update this morning. An eight-year-old boy has been found. After being lost and alone in a Michigan State Park for two days, he was camping with his family on Saturday when he got lost gathering firewood. He survived by eating snow and sheltering under a log. There he is. Search party volunteers found him on Monday afternoon.
New this morning, the governors of three regions in Russia on the border of Ukraine say the areas have been attacked by drones. One of the governors says a military facility was attacked. Another says an enemy drone explosion damaged several buildings in a car. And the third governor says falling debris from a shot down enemy drone damaged a gas pipe and a house. There were no injuries reported. And this all comes after Russia claimed last week that Ukraine launched a drone attack on the Kremlin in what they claim to be an assassination attempt on Vladimir Putin, obviously a claim that Ukraine vehemently denies. And all that happening as the leader of the Wagner mercenary group is signaling that Russia may be struggling in this battle. He's once again criticizing Russian military leadership for their lack of support for his fighters ahead of an expected Ukrainian counteroffensive. And joining us now to discuss, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. Secretary General, I appreciate your time. I want to start with something that I think everybody was observing yesterday, and that was the Victory Day parade in Moscow. There was a lot of attention paid to just how scaled down it was. Did you read anything uh, in what we all saw? Is there something to take away from that? I think we always should be careful reading too much uh, uh, into uh, a scaled-down parade. But anyway, it reflects the fact that uh, Russia has uh, uh, lost a lot of capabilities in the war uh, against uh, Ukraine. We have to remember that this was a war that President Putin uh, planned to win within days. And now they have uh, uh, been in Ukraine for uh, 15 months and they have suffered heavy casualties. And, uh, and this just um, demonstrates the big strategic mistake it was by President Putin to, to launch this war aggression against Ukraine. You mentioned the length of the war, the expectations at the very start of the invasion, um, the durability and the ability for Ukraine to succeed up to this point or to push back throughout the course of the last 15 months, I think has astonished most people, if not everyone. However, Ukrainian officials have voice some concern that the expectations may be a little bit too high for the counteroffensive. Concern tied to the fact that if there aren't some sweeping victories or, or significant pushes, that the alliance that is held together remarkably well over the course of 15 months supporting Ukraine may start to wither, may start to fracture a little bit. What's your read on that? President Putin made at least two big mistakes uh, when he invaded Ukraine. One was to totally underestimate the Ukrainian, the Ukrainian armed forces, the Ukrainian leadership, President uh, Zelensky. But he also totally underestimated NATO and NATO allies, and not least the US leadership that has been demonstrated since the invasion, uh, where NATO allies uh, has uh, provided unprecedented uh, uh, support to Ukraine, and where NATO allies and partners have reiterated again and again that we will stand by Ukraine for as long as it takes. And this is just demonstrated this week with a new announcement from uh, the United States, uh, more than one billion extra dollars in military uh, aid. Uh, and of course, wars are by nature unpredictable. But what we have seen is that uh, the Ukrainians have been able to uh, retake territory uh, before, uh, earlier in this war in, in the north around Kiev, in the east around Kharkiv, and in the south again uh, around Kherson. Uh, and, 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 and all the equipment, all, all the training they have received from NATO allies and partners, including uh, uh, nine brigades trained and well-equipped, uh, all of this should enable them to retake more territory in the counteroffensive. At the same time, we should never underestimate the Russians. Uh, the front lines have been static for a long time, and the Russians have been able to build uh, uh, significant uh, defensive lines with minefields and uh, and uh, and and uh, trenches to uh, to of course counter the uh, the planned counteroffensive. 
You know, you mentioned the durability of the alliance, which I think has probably grown stronger and actually larger by at least one uh, since the invasion. But there's another nation, Sweden, that is also in line to join. Do you believe Sweden, which is facing some issues with at least one member country, possibly two, will be part of the alliance by July during the NATO summit? I'm absolutely confident that uh, Sweden will become a member. Uh, I will work hard to ensure that that will happen uh, 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 by the uh, summit uh, uh, in Vilnius uh, in July this uh, year. Uh, and we have to remember that uh, regardless of when, when that happens, that they will be a full member, uh, Sweden is in a much better position now than before they applied because uh, uh, all allies, also Turkey, invited Sweden to become a member at our summit last year in Madrid. And since then, Sweden has had a special status, uh, an invitee, meaning that Sweden is participating in NATO meetings, uh, structures, integrating more and more into our civilian and military structures. Several allies, including the United States, have uh, issued uh, bilateral security assurances. Uh, with Finland in, if you look at the map, you know, Sweden is now surrounded by NATO countries. So it's absolutely inconceivable that there will be any uh, attack or threat against Sweden without NATO uh, reacting. So so, so, so uh, we have got a long way already, and I hope that we can finalize the accession process uh, by uh, Vilnius. And let me just add that this is an, actually a third big strategic mistake that President Putin made. He invaded Ukraine and sent a clear message that he does, doesn't want more NATO on his borders. He's getting the exact opposite. He's getting more NATO presence in the eastern part of the alliance. And then he's getting two new members, Finland and Sweden. And with Finland, NATO's border with, with Russia more than doubles. Yeah, it's a dramatic shift. I do want to ask you before I let you go. We're learning uh, this morning, talks are underway between NATO and Japan to uh, open a liaison office in the country. Uh, I think it would be the first in Asia. Can you confirm those talks are happening, what the strategy is behind them? Yes, we are uh, uh, talking with uh, uh, Japan uh, about uh, opening a, a NATO office in Tokyo. NATO has several uh, offices in partner countries, and Japan is a uh, very close and important partner for uh, for NATO, uh, and uh, we agreed uh, at the NATO summit last year that we should step up our partnership with uh, our Indo-Pacific partners, Australia, New Zealand, Japan and South Korea. I recently visited Japan, uh, and uh, the message there was that uh, security is not uh, regional anymore. Security is global. What happens in Europe uh, matters for uh, Asia, and what happens in Asia matters for uh, for Europe and Beijing is watching closely what happens in Ukraine, uh, 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 the price President Putin is paying, but also the potential rewards. So what happens in Ukraine actually matters for the calculations Beijing, China is making regarding, for instance, uh, uh, Taiwan. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, thanks so much, sir. Ahead, we'll take you out to Jerusalem, back to Jerusalem, where we just took you, where at least six rockets were fired from Gaza towards Israel. There's also a new recommendation this morning for breast cancer screenings, why officials say women should get their mammograms a lot sooner. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Beyonce's much-anticipated Renaissance World Tour kicks off in Sweden. 
She's been pretty quiet since releasing her seventh studio album. She has not released music videos, which her fans have been wanting and complaining, filmatingly leading the charge on social media for more. I'm going to the tour. No, you're I not. I have tickets, yeah. You are not. Yes, I am. You are? Yeah, it's my wife's 40th birthday present <gasps> in Paris in two weeks. Surprise. Is that for real? Chelsea, if you're watching. Yeah. My gosh, she's the best. Is my husband watching this? Sorry. Um, <laughs> no, she puts on like the best shows in the world. I cannot wait for you. I'm very excited for you. You should come. <laughs> should all hang out. Come. Um, okay, let me get back to the script. According to <laughs> Forbes, Beyonce could earn nearly $2.1 billion from the tour, which is about $500 million more than Taylor Swift could earn from her era's tour. Are you really based going? On, yes, is this no, actually, yeah, I still it's, don't know if you're... No, I'm being dead I'm serious. I'm just getting used to you, so I'm trying to yeah, figure yeah, out Yeah, no, this is joking. one of the few times in my life I'm being completely sincere. <laughs> and Chelsea doesn't know. Well, now she does, if she's watching. And you're know. taking we've her got, to We've Paris. got a lot of kids, so she might not be... Am able. I watching your four kids? Do you want to? Yes. I will do that for you. Ooh, that's what a good friend I mean, does. A, you don't even notice. <laughs> but thank you. Uh, I'll drop them off the day before we leave. Sounds It's going to be great. See you this morning continues right now. jury finds former President Donald J. Trump sexually abused and defamed E. Jean Carroll. This was a very unfair trial. That's all you have to say. When I heard the verdict, I felt that nothing is more powerful than the truth. I think the New York legal system's off the rails when it comes to Donald Trump. This judge has been overturned already once, and we think he's going to be overturned a second time. Truth Challenge Congressman George Santos has just been charged by the Justice Department. We don't know yet the exact nature of the charges. There's this persistent question about where did this guy get his money? That could be the basis for one set of charges. It does seem like chickens are coming home to ruse. If you lie enough, eventually somebody's going to find the truth. The nation is closer to its first default in American history. We know we have the time. We could do it easily, but do we have the will? This is a political game they're trying to play instead of sit down and really negotiate. By not taking default off the table, Speaker McCarthy is greatly endangering America. The United States is not going to default. It never has, and it never will. More migrants, by the hundreds if not thousands, arrive hourly into this Mexican border city. And by no means is this their last stop. This is just before COVID-era public health order, known as Title 42, used to quickly expel migrants and set to expire. We're doing all we can. It's going to be chaotic for a while. Best in show tonight is the PBGV. It's Buddy Holly. Holy PBGV. Buddy Holly is the epitome of a show dog, and we are just so proud of him. And this is so surreal. Morning, everyone. We're so glad you're with us. It is 7 a.m. here on the East Coast. Caitlin is on assignment for a really significant Trump Town Hall tonight, right here on CNN. If she was going to be gone, that's a decent reason to be gone. She's going to be phenomenal. She, I. Caitlin was born for this, and I'm looking forward to voters getting their questions answered in yes. New Hampshire as well. Thank you, Phil Mattingly, for being here. Thanks for having me. New overnight, former President Trump has been lashing out at the jury here in New York City after they found he sexually abused and defamed E. Jean Carroll. Trump was still posting on social media well after midnight, calling the jurors partisan. What else can you expect from a Trump-hating, Clinton-appointed judge Speaking to and in control of a jury from an anti-Trump area, which is probably the worst place in the United States for me to get a fair trial. I don't even know who this woman is. 
I have no idea who she is, where she came from. This is another scam. So it goes without saying the jury did not agree with that take. It took them less than three hours to reach a verdict that Trump sexually abused Carol in the dressing room of a Manhattan department store back in the 1990s and then defamed Carol last year when he called her a total con job. The jurors ordered Trump to pay $5 million in damages, but he's vowing to appeal. Eugene Carroll will join us live right here in studio just over an hour from now after her huge legal victory. Now, it's worth noting, this was a civil trial, not a criminal case. So there was no consideration of jail time. It was about liability and financial penalties. We want to bring in federal prosecutor Katie Tchaikovsky. One of the things I think everybody's trying to figure out in the wake of this, besides the fact that this is pretty, this is significant. This is a very uh, big deal in terms of the jury's decision to uh, not hold him liable for rape, but to hold him liable for sexual assault. Can walk us through that? Because I think the, the Trump lawyers have been trying to use that as something to muddy the waters a little bit about what this actually meant. Sure. Well, we see this quite a lot in these kind of sex cases. And I do a lot of them. I was a prosecutor and I defend these cases all the time. But when you see a jury come back with what we'll call like a lesser included finding, typically what that means is that the jury believed that something happened and they don't quite know about the penetrative element to it, which is what the rape is, but that there was some sort of non-consensual that comes from other witnesses. So in this case, for example, E. Jean Carroll told other friends after the assault that something had happened. And perhaps the jury wasn't quite able to say specifically what that act was, but that there was some sort of non-consensual touching. So it's pretty common, quite frankly, in these, in these sort of cases to have that sort of finding. But my guess is that, that it came from the corroborating evidence in addition to her testimony. I think this also really highlights the importance of a law that was passed here in New York not long ago, the Adult Survivors Act. And that created a one-year period in which people like Ms. Carroll could come forward and say, this is what happened to me, and the legal system could actually go to work for them. Because it couldn't before, because of statutes of limitation, for et cetera. How significant is that? Well, obviously, that law really gave the opportunity for this case to be litigated in the civil forum. Now, this is not a criminal yeah. consequence here. There's no conviction. There's no jail time on the table. But clearly, if there's any sort of allegation that something unwanted happened in a sexual realm, that that law covers this. Now, the testimony of Ms. Carroll was specifically that she had been raped. So there is that disconnect there between her testimony and the finding of the jury. But it doesn't mean that the, the finding is inappropriate. It just means that there was some sort of lack of, of finding completely what she said was true had happened, but there was something along those lines that they found. Mm. And again, this is not a beyond a reasonable doubt standard. This is a preponderance of the evidence. So it's a more likely than not standard. But a unanimous jury required. Absolutely. So it's still a significant finding, if not specifically what she testified to. Stick with us. We're going to make you earn this appearance because there's a lot of stuff going on on the legal side of things in New York. This morning, New York Republican Congressman George Santos could appear in court after federal prosecutors filed criminal charges against him. Now, those charges remain under seal, but the Justice Department has reportedly been investigating allegedly false statements on his campaign finance filings. Santos has also been accused of violating federal conflict of interest laws, stealing cash meant for Iraq war veterans, dying dogs, Still can't get over that one. And masterminding a credit card fraud scheme. Now, the charges come just a month after Santos announced he would run for re-election. Despite the fierce backlash and calls to resign, Democrats and Republicans, after reports revealed he lied to voters about much of his personal 
and family history. Uh, it felt a little bit inevitable just because there was so much and we knew that there was an investigation. What do you make now that even though they're under seal, charges have been filed? Well, I think it's long overdue. And if you're that much of a prolific liar, I've found in the criminal law, it's somewhat hard to stay out of jail for a significant <laughs> period of time. Um, so obviously, there's a lot of potentials here in terms of what the charges might be, likely related to the campaign finance violations, potentially to embezzlement of this charitable fund and anything along those lines. So clearly, this does not directly impact his ability to rerun and to potentially even remain in Congress. And Kevin McCarthy has said that they will wait for the charges to play out. He has a presumption of innocence under the Constitution in any criminal case anybody does. But I, I think this, this was an inevitability. And hopefully this will bring to justice somebody that probably likely very much needs that to happen. And it he could be in court as soon as today, and that's when the charges would be unsealed and the public would know what they are? Exactly. That's what we anticipate at this point. today. Thank you, Katie. Sure. We are looking at live pictures right out of Gosstown, New Hampshire. That is where former President Trump is going to take questions from voters there in that critical state. Also, undeclared voters in a CNN town hall tonight. Trump has quickly emerged as a frontrunner in the Republican field for president in 2024. It will be his first appearance on CNN since the 2016 presidential campaign. That's where we find our Kristen Holm. She joins us now. Kristen, great to see you. This is your beat. And this is the first time, it's such a consequential week, too, for the former president that he, we're going to hear from him directly taking these voter questions here on CNN. Yeah, that's right, Poppy. And remember, when it comes to the former president, nothing is predictable. But I spoke to a number of Trump advisors who huddled with him yesterday. They went over potential questions. They talked about what the event was going to look like. And their real hope is that he stays on message, that he talks about foreign policy and the economy and immigration. Again, that is their hope. And they say, though, that it's impossible to prep someone like Donald Trump because he's going to say what he's going to say. When I talk to these advisors, they really stress the fact that they understand that Trump has some work to do with Republican voters. And that's why he's doing this town hall, because he wants to reach people outside of his bubble, of his base. It's not just that he's doing this town hall. This might be the first time he's appearing uh, in, in, in that he was invited since 2016. But his campaign has been running ads on CNN as well. It shows you that they are trying to reach people, again, outside of his base. But the real thing that we're watching for tonight is which Trump shows up and how he reacts to the questions that are asked. And I don't mean just out loud. I mean behaviorally as well. How does he, does he bristle? How does he actually react reactively when it comes to a physical component of that? And that's what we're going to look at later tonight when we see him on that stage. Yeah, Kristen, it, it's Phil. Your reporting behind the scenes of this has been fascinating. I think we've all been trying to figure out the angle or the strategy into agreeing to do this. Are his advisors confident that he's ready for this kind of sit down? Um, I'm a little bit biased when I say I sat very close to Caitlin Collins for two years at the White House. I wouldn't necessarily want to be interviewed by her ever. Um, but our, he doesn't have contentious interviews. He doesn't go confront interviewers that are willing to go after him for lying, saying things that, that aren't tethered to reality, is he ready for that? Well, Phil, look, this is a question that I have asked over and over again, and they believe they have prepared him uh, to react to this in the appropriate way. But when it comes to the former president, again, he is a very reactive person and it is unclear what we're going to get when he sits down tonight. He could have every intention of staying on message, but it really is going to depend on, again, how he reacts 
to those questions. And we're just going to have to wait and see. They just hope that he stays on message. Kristen, thank you. We'll all be tuning in tonight. Caitlin will moderate this exclusive CNN town hall with former President Trump. That's live tonight from New Hampshire, 8 p.m. Eastern. Also this morning, President Biden and the four top leaders in Congress, they're going to give it another shot on Friday as they race against the clock to raise the nation's debt ceiling or risk the first in U.S. history catastrophic default. Biden says he made it clear in yesterday's Oval Office meeting that default is not an option. After leaving the meeting, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says they failed to make any breakthroughs at all. Everybody in this meeting reiterated the positions they were at. I didn't see any new movement. The president said the staff should get back together. But I was very clear with the president. We have now just two weeks to go. Now, again, the president and those top four congressional leaders will sit down on Friday. Staff discussions in the meantime, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says they have just weeks to broker a deal. Treasury Secretary also says the U.S. may not be able to pay its bills as soon as June 1st if Congress and the president don't act. Financial analysts, well, they say this would be catastrophic for the nation's probably global economy and global economic crisis, certainly a possibility. They're warning it could cause a recession, cost millions of Americans their jobs. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez is live at the White House this morning. Hey, buddy. It's good to see you. My teammates. Morning, Phil. Also biased towards Priscilla. Now, President Biden is set to speak about the debt limit just a couple of hours from now. The location is very intentional. What do we expect from him? Well, we expect that he is going to dig in his heels, too. I mean, this is indicative of where the meeting was yesterday. This was an hour-long meeting between Biden and congressional leadership. And there really wasn't any new ground broken as part of those conversations with each side sticking to their stances, which is that Biden sees that they should plan or they should plan to send a clean debt ceiling bill, whereas Republicans want to see spending cuts. Now, Biden in remarks after the uh, meeting said that he's open to talking about spending cuts, but separately with the federal budget, not an attachment to the debt ceiling. So the two leaders, as you heard there from Kevin McCarthy, really just digging in. And that is what we expect to hear from President Biden today when he speaks in upstate New York. Now, of course, Biden does have travel planned up against that June 1st deadline. He indicated yesterday that he may skip that if they still haven't reached an agreement. But the next few days are really important with White House staff and congressional leadership staff meeting to try to find some sort of agreement ahead of that Friday meeting again between President Biden and congressional leadership. Phil. Busy couple days ahead. Priscilla Alvarez, thanks so much. The United States is bracing for a surge of migrants when a controversial border policy ends tomorrow. President Biden is now warning things will be chaotic for a while. That's a quote. Former acting secretary of Homeland Security Chad Wolf will join us to talk about all of that. And Tucker Carlson announcing plans to relaunch his show just weeks after Fox News fired him. But it will not be on TV. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I've had close to an hour with uh, with the Mexican president today. Uh, we're doing all we can. Uh, the answer is uh, it remains to be seen. It's going to be chaotic for a while. That was a candid assessment from the president last night. He says we can expect the border to be chaotic when Title 42 expires tomorrow. Now, you'll remember that's the COVID era immigration restriction that allowed border authorities to quickly deport certain migrants. U.S. officials estimate around 155 thousand migrants are camped out in shelters and along the streets along the border. 
Joining us now is former Acting Secretary of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf. Chad, thanks so much for joining us. I want to start with your view of the proposals the administration has put into place over the course of the last couple of weeks, which try and get at several areas, whether uh, origin, whether deterrence, whether processing speed. Um, where do you think they should be doing more in your mind? Well, it's a great question. I think uh, certainly on, on the deterrent side, I think a lot of the measures that they're putting in place, you know, that they announced last week and really have announced over the last several months is really talking about processing more and more illegal aliens into the country quicker and quicker. And so that's problematic, right? Because that's going to continue to incentivize. That's exactly what the cartels want to hear and see because they can market that to individuals saying that you're getting into the United States quicker. They're giving you more opportunities to come to the United States. So we've really got to address a little bit of the deterrence. We've got to hold people accountable that if they choose to cross illegally here in El Paso or elsewhere along this border, that we hold them accountable. There are legal ways to come into the country um, and we need, to, we need to funnel people to those ways uh, and stop the illegal behavior because that's what's causing the, the border to be in such chaos at the moment. You know, along those lines though, you know, you say that, but the administration's, I think, as far as I know, about to roll out a new asylum rule that kind of echoes what the Trump administration did in terms of barring yeah. migrants from seeking asylum in the U.S. Uh, without first trying to seek asylum through uh, another country. Um, why, they're getting a lot of flack from Democrats, from the, their con congressional allies on that. Yeah. Why is that not enough? That's deterrence. That's very similar to what you guys were doing. Why is that not enough? So I've looked at that rule. Uh, it's a good first step. Again, I'm not sure why they, they basically didn't defend that rule at the beginning of the administration that was still in place from the Trump administration. So we're two years late in that rule. There's a lot of, uh, I would say, loopholes in that rule, but it's a good first step. So they're trying to do the right thing. But what I will tell you is it's far too little, far too late at this point. That rule alone is not going to do it. The parole system that they have put in place paroling in 30,000 individuals, the CBP-1 app. All you have to do is register on that app, and again, you will probably get paroled into the United States. These continue to be pull factors uh, that are bringing uh, these illegal aliens in record numbers. And again, you don't have to take my word for it. You just look at the data and the statistics. More and more individuals are coming in. More and more gotaways are coming across that border every single month. There's gotta be a reason for that. Uh, and I think it's in part some of the policies that we've seen over the last 27 months. Do you think Title 42 should remain in play? That's been your position, right? Title 42 should stick around? Well, I think it's, it's been extremely helpful for the Border Patrol to try to uh, really manage the crisis that they're seeing. And when you're overwhelmed to the extent that Border Patrol agents are every single day, this allows them to return individuals back to Mexico in a very expedited fashion. Without that, DHS is gonna to have to put these individuals in Title VIII proceedings, and most, if not all of them, will be released into American communities. So if we're thinking about Americans first, and we're thinking about the safety and well-being of Americans, a Title 42 authority or like authority uh, is very helpful when the border is in such chaos and it's overwhelmed to the extent it is today. So the reason why I ask, and, and I think you get at this a little bit when you say Title 42-like authority, is this is obviously tied to a public health emergency. I don't think you would sit here and say that COVID right. is still uh, a public health emergency. I think it's been utilized long after it was really even tied to that anymore. So the question becomes, this takes legislative action. And I think if there's one area of broad agreement uh, uh, from both parties, it's that the system itself is broken, despite unilateral actions, depending on political party. So... 
what do you do? You can't actually legally still have Title 42 in place if there's no public health emergency. What's your solution here in terms of a legislative process beyond kind of one-offs from the executive side? Well, you're exactly right. When you look at Title 42-like authority, uh, unless the administration's gonna uh, declare a public health emergency around the fentanyl crisis, which there's probably some legitimacy to that, uh, it is probably going to take some legislative action if you're just looking at Title 42 authority. Now look, there's a number of things that the president, the DHS secretary, can do today to help curb this crisis. There's a number of authorities that they inherently have and can execute on today. They're not doing that. They've called on Congress to give them more authority. I think we're seeing some action in the House this week on that. Uh, but again, the legislative process is, is not quick. It's slow. Um, so I would, I'm a big champion and a fan of utilizing the authorities that they have today to help stem the crisis, to help bring some, some order uh, back to the border and to help Border Patrol agents who have been overwhelmed now uh, for the last 27 months. Just last one before I let you go. Is it possible to do the deterrence you think is necessary and also maintain a safe and humane system? Well, I think it is. Um, I think you can do both, but you've got to bring, uh, again, that order, that deterrence. You've got to hold people accountable. I think you can do all that while still giving individuals who are claiming asylum, who really, really need those protections found in U.S. law. How do we get them the protections early in the process so they're not waiting five years, uh, that they don't become lost into the system? I think that is really the point here. We tried to do that, I think, successfully with the Remain in Mexico program. This administration doesn't like that. So what are the other alternatives? And to my mind, they haven't given, they haven't come up with those alternatives because we continue to see these record numbers at the border every, every month. Yeah, I don't, I don't think Remain in Mexico is viewed as safe and humane. It was effective on a numbers perspective. Uh, Chad Wolf, this, keep this discussion going for a very long time. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. All right. We do have breaking news. The chief spokesperson for the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, says more than 60 rockets have been fired toward Israel from Gaza in just the last 45 minutes. Let's go back to Elliot Gakai. He joins us from Jerusalem. What are you hearing? Sirens, right? Poppy, we're not hearing the sirens here in Jerusalem, but they have now sounded in Tel Aviv. And that will be seen as uh, something of an escalation uh, by the uh, IDF from the part of the militants in the Gaza Strip. Uh, they don't have that many rockets that can reach that far. And uh, this is something that will be taken uh, very seriously. So sirens have been sounding in the cities and towns and the communities surrounding the Gaza Strip. Uh, Mr. Uh, Hagari says that uh, about a million and a half Israelis are in or near bomb shelters right now. And earlier today, the uh, Home Front Command uh, ordered those uh, people in those communities around the Gaza Strip to remain in their shelters until further notice. And I can tell you that sirens are pretty much constantly sounding. We're getting constant reports from the IDF saying that they're striking uh, either um, uh, infrastructure from uh, Islamic Jihad, rocket launching infrastructure, weapons storage uh, facilities. And of course, if they see uh, a, a rocket that is about to fire, and, he, and, and uh, uh, Daniel Hagari made the point that these rocket launchers are not with people standing next to the rocket launchers. Most of them are on timers. So they're out there ready to fire. If Israel spots any of these launchers that are ready to fire, that it will take them out. And so we're seeing more and more uh, airstrikes from uh, Israel into the Gaza Strip. But at the same time, these rockets continue to be launched from Gaza towards Israel with sirens now sounding in addition to those communities by the Gaza Strip in Tel Aviv as well. Yeah. Poppy? Quite a distance, Elliot. Thank you very much for the reporting. 
Well, new federal guidance that women should start screening for breast cancer a decade earlier than previously recommended. We'll tell you what changed and what conversations you should be having with your doctor. Significant health news this morning that will impact millions of women in the United States. The U.S. Preventative Services Task Force is now recommending that women should get regular mammograms starting at 40 years old. That's 10 years earlier than the current recommended age. The goal, of course, is to screen for breast cancer, which kills more than 43,000 women in the U.S. each year. That's according to the American Cancer Society. Joining us now is Chief of Breast Surgery at Mount Sinai Health Systems, Dr. Elisa Port. Doctor, great to have you. Thank you very Thank much you, for Poppy, being for with us. Me. So 40, I'm 41, so I started, I started getting these last year because yes. my doctor recommended it. But officially, the guidance wasn't until you're 50, right? Correct. So I think it is important to understand that originally, based on tons of data, and research showing that mammograms starting at age 40 do save lives. We've known that all along. And there was a change to 50, and this is a reversion back to where we were initially, a very welcome reversion back. One of the things that I think is important, and I'd like to get to this next, is when I was reading this reporting last night, is the disparity. How How much more likely black women Yes. are to die of breast cancer yes. in white women, 40% yes. more likely. Yes, so women um, of color, black women, have a propensity to develop a type of breast cancer. They're way more likely to develop a type of breast cancer that's known as triple negative breast cancer. It's more aggressive. It can develop at earlier ages and can definitely lead to an increased risk of dying. So this is a group of women that we do need to start screening earlier, as well as the rest of the population. And that's a big reason why this updated guidance is so critical, right? When you look at this number, one in five. One in five women who, who, black women who develop breast cancer will have this type of breast cancer. That's compared to all women who develop breast cancer, it's closer to one in 10. Okay. So yes, black women are disproportionately affected by this aggressive kind of breast cancer. And we've got to start screening them earlier and more frequently. And early, early detection is the whole ball game, right? Absolutely. It's, it's everything. Yes. So early detection saves lives. And another piece of information that I really think is important and is much less known is that it also saves lives doing less aggressive treatment. If you're getting screened, we're way more likely to pick up cancers earlier when a woman might not need aggressive surgery, aggressive chemotherapy. And that's a huge win too, and that's Mm -hmm. really important to know, and it's not as commonly discussed. Obviously, a question often is, well, what about cost? Is my insurance, is any insurance, even government provided, going to cover this cost full? I've always had mine through my insurance fully covered, but I think that's important for people to understand. Yes, and that's the thing we worry about with these guidelines. You're 100% right, which is, you know, these people sit up and take notice when these national guidelines come through and insurers can use it as fuel to stop coverage. What should people do if they call their insurance and their insurance says, no, we don't cover it at 40? Yeah, that, that's a problem. And obviously many women who can't afford to get mammograms on their own 
are hamstringed by that. Right. So far, we haven't seen too many okay. denials. And the truth of the matter is, you know, the, the national guidelines from the professional societies have never changed and never wavered yeah. in starting at 40 and, importantly, yearly after that. Yeah. We're still not there yet with the USPSTF guidelines. Whenever I go, I put June, I put an appointment in for the next year to remind smart. myself to make it. So just yes. something to remind everyone to yes, do it. Yes, very smart. And I applaud that. Thank you, Dr. Lisa Port. It's great Thank to you. have you. Thanks, Thanks very, for very having much. me. Phil. Well, federal prosecutors filing charges against embattled New York Republican Congressman George Santos. He could appear in court as early as today. What he could be in trouble for. Plus, how other Republican presidential contenders are reacting to the sexual abuse and defamation verdict against Donald Trump. Who's speaking up and who's staying silent? Tonight, former President Donald Trump returns to CNN for the first time since his 2016 presidential campaign. Why? Well, he'll be participating in a presidential town hall in New Hampshire, moderated by our very own Caitlin Collins. And the event comes as the 2024 Republican primary field is beginning to take shape. Now, we're still in the early stages, and I'm sure a lot of you would like it to stay in the early stages, but this is starting to get real. So let's take a look at where things stand today. Start with who's actually in the race. Yes, the former president, he was in the race, the first one in. Also, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, and kind of the candidate that's gotten a little hot early, Vivek Ramaswamy, is also in right now. But more are coming. As everybody tries to game out what the best timeline is to get in, how do you challenge somebody who's so formidable as the former president in Republican polling? Well, here's one who believes he might have a shot. Senator Tim Scott, South Carolina Republican senator. He's not officially announced yet. He's about to announce. Pretty clear he's going to announce on May 22nd. That's when a big event is planned. He's been moving in that direction. If you talk to people on Capitol Hill, they think very highly of the Republican senator. Whether he will be able to challenge, a very open question. But he will have money and certainly has name recognition and respect within the Republican Party. Who else is out there, though? This is also interesting. Former Vice President Mike Prince has been traveling all over the country trying to set the stage before he makes a decision. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, he was in in 2016. He has been lambasting former President Donald Trump as he tries to figure out whether or not there's a lane he's considering. Former New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu hasn't made a decision yet either. But this is the one everybody has their eyes on. Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. He was the hottest item in the Republican Party for the months leading up to just about now. That has started to shrink a little bit, not just in the polling, but also in perception. What hasn't shrunk, however, is the amount of money he has in his campaign and this reality, which has been clear now for several months. This, at this point, is a two-person race with one of those people having a significant polling advantage. You take a look at the two most recent polls, ABC News, Washington Post, Fox News poll, Donald Trump with a 26-point lead over DeSantis in the most recent ABC Washington Post poll, with a 32-point lead over DeSantis in a Fox News poll. Let me tell you, it's very early. It's like really early. Maybe don't pay a ton of attention to polls, but that is a notable number, which again underscores this reality. These two, not so close and friendly as perhaps they were there at this point in time, are the people that everyone has their eyes on. They've got money, they have clear authority within the Republican Party, and they've long been viewed as the two that would eventually be going at one another. Well, they're super PACs, they're already doing that. 
Ron DeSantis loves sticking his fingers where they don't belong. And we're not just talking about pudding. DeSantis has his dirty fingers all over senior entitlements. Donald Trump is being attacked by a Democrat prosecutor in New York. So why is he spending millions attacking the Republican governor of Florida? Trump's stealing pages from the Biden Pelosi playbook. Ramping up is probably an understatement. Buckle up, folks. It's campaign season. Poppy? Thank you. Former Vice President Mike Pence reacting to the jury verdict that Trump sexually abused and defamed E. Jean Carroll with this response. Does that result change your view about whether or not he is fit to serve as president? Well, I, I think that's a question for the American people, but I, I, I really can't comment on a judgment in a civil case. I have no knowledge of those matters. And um, uh, I'm sure the president uh, uh, will defend himself in that matter. And I would tell you, in my four and a half years serving alongside the president, I, I never heard or witnessed behavior uh, of that nature. So far, silence from several other prospective Republican White House hopefuls, except for former Arkansas governor and now presidential contender Asa Hutchinson. Listen to what he said on CNN last night. Republicans should not be dismissing this and saying this is not of any significance. It is, and the jury system worked in this case. Anybody who wants to be president and lead the free world to have these kind of, of serious issues around uh, is, uh, it, is, is a significant factor. What really matters is what voters think. Will this verdict change how they feel about former President Trump and how they will vote? Joining us now, CNN national politics reporter Eva McKen, as well as very serious writer Josh Barrow. It's great to have you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to see you. So we will know how some voters feel tonight because I suspect this would be a topic that voters, I don't know, but I, voters may ask about tonight at the town hall. Yes, we'll start to get an early sense. Listen, if we were in a traditional political climate, this would clearly be a liability. This would clearly have implications for his electability. But we're not in a conventional climate. I think about my time last year in Georgia covering that Senate race between Herschel Walker and Senator Warnock. Right. And I met a lot of conservative voters out on the trail at these Herschel Walker rallies and a consistent theme uh, was that they felt as though conservatives were targeted. They said that the, the onslaught against Herschel Walker, that they also uh, related that to Justice Kavanaugh. And so with this outcome, with the Eugene Carroll case, I think it gives them more uh, fodder, you know, for concern. So we'll have to see. I think that Republican voters are likely to rally around Trump, but some could be turned off by this. Josh, it's first time I put together that because... You're writing his title very serious. You are now introduced as a very serious yes, writer, and nobody puts the quotes around very <laughs> serious. Part of, part of the advantages. Yeah, 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 it's brilliant. It's it's absolutely that. brilliant. Yes. I should have put that yes. together a long time yeah. ago. Um, yeah. I, th I think my question right now is: We saw some of the ads from the super PACs where the DeSantis super PAC is going yeah. after Trump a little bit. Very few Republicans, as we're watching, actually do that. And I feel like, to some degree, when you talk to people inside the Republican uh, operative world, they're starting to come to terms with the fact that the former president is going to be the nominee again. It's like a year away from the general election. 
Do you feel like this is a done deal at this point? I don't think it's a done deal yet because I don't think we've seen the full scope of the DeSantis attacks on Donald Trump yet. I mean, I think the roadmap for Ron, Ron DeSantis is that you have to make the case that Trump says he's fighting for you, but he lost a lot of these fights. He ultimately, you know, whatever you think about the conduct of the 2020 election, he came out of it, he was no longer president. Many of the COVID restrictions that conservatives were so upset about were imposed under Donald Trump's rule, who kept Anthony Fauci in place through that entire year, or nearly a year that the... That the former president was president during the COVID pandemic. And so I think, you know, th there is that case to be made. DeSantis has not been making it in earnest because he's not a candidate yet. Right. So I think we need to see what that looks like. I don't think this verdict matters a lot for the primary because I think, you know, frankly, the, we, we knew that the former president admitted to this sort of behavior as soon as we all heard the Access Hollywood tape. The Access Hollywood tape was a key piece of evidence in this trial going to his propensity to treat women in the manner that E.J. E. Jean Carroll accused him of treating her in. So, you know, I think that was basically priced in. And, you know, when we talk about Herschel Walker, I think most Republicans sort of discard these accusations. And yet Herschel Walker lost that race at a time when other Republicans were winning statewide elections in Georgia. And so I think there is a real penalty for Trump's behavior. I just think it's a penalty that applied in 2016, applied in 2020. It's something that has been an electoral liability for him. I just don't think it's a new electoral liability. Yeah. Hmm. What about George Santos and where this goes? We'll see maybe in court today these federal charges unsealed. And the question now really is for Speaker McCarthy. So what are you going to do about it? Yeah, we'll, we'll have to see if he you know, believes that this is untenable. Obviously, Republicans have a very slim majority, and that is why we have seen this consistent reluctance uh, to really you know, fully distance himself from the embattled congressman. But, but Poppy, you know, I have spent the last several months talking to constituents in that district, and I think you know, we will learn what the charges are today. That is really important. But we should not forget the people that live in this district. And, you know, fundamentally, beyond all the theater, it's about constituent services. It's about serving your community. And when you are just ensnared in all of this controversy and now indicted on federal charges, it's really hard to do that. So I just want to ask you another uh, issue that's hanging over Washington is age, right? There's no mm -hmm. question about it. Whether you're at the Senate Democratic Caucus and you're dealing with Senator Dianne Feinstein, who came back uh, after being away for a while, whether your presidential candidate is 80, already the oldest president, uh, in U.S. history and might be facing off against somebody who's almost as old as well. There was a really interesting piece of sound from Charlemagne the God, um, which doesn't sound like something that I'm probably watching or listening to on a regular basis, but he is actually... No, no, no. It's not, not because it's famous, but it's actually a very astute take on great, politics great, very, very yes. often. I want to listen to it real quick. If yeah, people man. are saying that they don't want those people running, isn't this a democracy yeah. where we get to decide? No, it's not. And it's a damn shame America don't have any other options because we're in a two-party system. Folks don't really want Trump. Folks don't really want Biden. We just stuck with what we got. Yeah. And that's a damn shame. First off, that's alarm bells material for the White House. They care what Charlemagne the God thinks. But what do you make of that argument? Well, I mean, this is the same thing that Charlemagne the God was saying in October of right. 2020, where he was saying, you know, I'm going in, I'm voting for Kamala Harris. I'm not really casting a vote for Joe Biden. But they'd had an open primary process in 2020. And Joe Biden had basically no support among operatives in the Democratic Party, no support among commentators. He led the polls the whole way through. I think he reflects a base of opinion within the party that likes his low-key style. And that low-key style, I think, uh, appeals to a broader segment of the electorate than would be the 
the case if they had nominated Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or, or Kamala Harris. And so I think that, you know, that Biden has never really caught, quite gotten the respect that he deserved for how, how broad his appeal has been. Um, and, you know, you, yes, you see these polls that say people would prefer some other candidate. But then if you ask them about specific other candidates, those candidates don't beat Joe Biden in a primary. And so I think that, you know, y- you can always conjure up in your mind some ideal candidate that you would have instead. I think a lot of people basically want Barack Obama back. You can't have Barack Obama back. And I think, you know, there's a reason Joe Biden won. And if he was actually weak within the party, if there was actually hunger for someone to replace him, he would be facing a serious primary challenge. That's a key point. Eva, before you go, I mean, I think he's saying out loud on a very popular show what a lot of people are saying at home with their friends. Absolutely. This sort of sort of raw take mirrors, I think, the the sentiment of a lot of voters that I speak to. I'm speaking to young progressive activists, and they say that this is going to be a tough sell to get, you know, young progressive voters out to support President Biden again. So, you know, Charlemagne is not speaking in a vacuum here. Yeah. Thank you. Good to have you both on set. Very serious writer. Very serious writer. Very serious, great journalist to my left as well. That's um, not in jest, though. Like, that's very... Very. Thanks, guys, very much. All right, also, Tucker Carlson saying he's relaunching his show on Twitter. We'll tell you what Elon Musk had to say about that big announcement. And this just in official say more than 10,000 migrants were encountered along the U.S. southern border yesterday alone. We're going to take you there. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Starting soon, we'll be bringing a new version of the show we've been doing for the last six and a half years to Twitter. We bring some other things too, which we'll tell you about. But for now, we're just grateful to be here. Free speech is the main right that you have. Without it, you have no others. See you soon. Just two weeks since Tucker Carlson was fired from Fox News, he's announced he's relaunching his show on Twitter. In that video, he praised the social media platform Uh, as a bastion of free speech while criticizing the media industry writ large. It's unclear how this will all work. Twitter's chief executive, Elon Musk, posted that Twitter has not signed any kind of deal whatsoever. And he said that Carlson, quote, is subject to the same rules and rewards of all content creators. And according to The New York Times, Carlson is still under contract with Fox until 2025, which could prevent him from working elsewhere until that deal runs out. Now, CNN reached out to Fox for comment. Spokesperson could not immediately be reached. But joining us now for more details is CNN media analyst and Axios media reporter Sarah Fisher. Uh, Sarah, you have some new reporting, and I think this is the most fascinating element of many, uh, about how Tucker Carlson is trying to get around the contract issue. What are you learning? Yeah, so Tucker Carlson's lawyers sent a letter to Fox News executives yesterday alleging that they breached his contract because a bunch of executives, including Rupert Murdoch himself, made promises to Carlson, basically saying, look, if you give us some of your personal communications, we will use them to protect you. And what the lawyers are alleging is that they didn't do that, that they actually were responsible for potentially leaking these communications to the news media, et cetera. And so what they're saying is that in doing that and breaking those promises, it would be a breach of his contract. And that matters, Phil, because that would get Tucker out of a non-compete clause in his contact contract that you know prohibits him from launching new ventures, going on other networks, et cetera. As you mentioned, and as our sources have told us, because his contract ends in 2025, that would sideline him through the 2024 election. And Tucker Carlson does not want to waste precious time. What about advertisers? Obviously, that was a challenge that Fox faced with some advertisers pulling out of Carlson's time slot, although get really high ratings, and they started to see those ratings in that time slot really fall when he left. But 
how would this play out on Twitter vis-a-vis -vis advertisers? It's a great question. The news media, especially as one type of sector, has not fled Twitter. A lot of advertisers still use Twitter because it's a great platform. There's still a lot of the, it's still a big audience there. But in terms of how it would work on a show like that, it's very unclear, Poppy. Twitter has a program called Amplify where it does work with certain media partners to place premium brands around their content. But I don't think premium brands, if they didn't want to be around Tucker's show when it was on Fox, are going to be jumping at the bullet to be being around that show when it's on Twitter. I don't think this is really a revenue play for, for Tucker. I think it's a prominence play. He wants to reach opinion leaders. He thinks Twitter's the place to do that. What I expect will happen is that he'll do this alongside other ventures. Maybe he has a Twitter show and he also has a subscription product. Maybe he has a Twitter show and he also tries to do something with Newsmax or Daily Wire or another conservative outlet. I don't think this is going to be his money play. Sir, I do want to ask, uh, Paramount announced it's shutting down iconic, uh, generationally very relevant for me, MTV News, which comes less than a month after BuzzFeed announced it would shut down its news division. Vice Media canceled Vice News Tonight. Nearly every major news technology and entertainment company has had to make cuts in recent months, including CNN. What does this say about the current media landscape? It's tough, Phil. This is something I cover very closely. When the ad market began to dip in wake of inflation after the pandemic, news media companies were impacted badly. And that's because if you have to put your messaging around something, if you're a brand, you want to do it in the most cost-efficient way, put them on Google and Facebook. You're not going to spend premium dollars. And so what happened is a lot of these companies are facing investor pressure. You noted BuzzFeed. They're publicly traded now, Paramount, publicly traded. And what investors want to see is for them to put all of their eggs in the most lucrative basket. It's, that's often entertainment content. It's not news. Sarah, thank you very much. Thank you. CNN This Morning continues right now. I have absolutely no idea who this woman is. The verdict is a disgrace, a continuation of the greatest witch hunt of all time. Morning, everyone. It is the top of the hour. We have a big hour, a big day, big rest of the week ahead of us. So we are very glad that you are with us. Minutes from now, E. Jean Carroll will join us live in studio after winning her sexual abuse and defamation lawsuit against former President Donald Trump. What she has to say to that response from the former president that you just heard. And then tonight, Trump will be right here on CNN for a town hall. He'll face questions from our very own Caitlin Collins. And Congressman George Santos could turn himself in as soon as today after being charged by federal prosecutors. And if that's not enough news for you tomorrow, the controversial Title 42 border policy ends and the number of migrants crossing into the U.S. is already on the rise. Looking at a Friday, time is quickly running out to raise the debt limit. And President Biden is set to hold another round of talks with top congressional leaders as our nation faces a potentially catastrophic default. This all is covered right now as this hour of CNN This Morning starts. Well, here's where we start. As CNN first reported, embattled New York Republican Congressman George Santos is now facing federal criminal charges and could appear in court as soon as today. The charges remain under seal. They're in the Eastern District of New York. But the Justice Department has reportedly been looking into whether he broke campaign finance laws. Santos has been resisting calls from Democrats and some New York Republicans to resign ever since reports revealed he lied about much of his personal history and his work experience. Our Bryn Jean Grass is covering this light outside the courthouse for more. When do we expect them to be unsealed? And what reporting do you have on what they are likely tied to? 
Yeah, Poppy, much of our reporting coming from our colleague, Mark Morales and Evan Perez, learning that George Santos could appear at the courthouse behind me as early as today. If he does come for uh, this indictment that we're hearing has been filed, he would have to be just like any other citizen and actually walk up those long uh, stairway to the door. Of course, he's not necessarily like every other citizen. He'll probably be swarmed by press when if he does show up today. Again, as you mentioned, this indictment under seal, it's not clear what charges uh, the congressman could face. But we do know from previous CNN reporting that he has faced a lot of scrutiny about how he's made his money and contributions that he made alone to his campaign in 2022, uh, about more than $700,000. Where did that money come from? This is all something that we have reported that federal prosecutors here in New York were looking into. There's also been scrutiny about some campaign expenditures. So, of course, that will all be determined when this indictment gets unsealed, which we do think possibly today we will get more information about that. What we do know is that the Republican congressman, who again just took office in January, he did not vote last night uh, in Washington, D.C. Instead, he boarded a plane to come here to New York. So it's very possible we will see him here uh, in Central Islip later today. Poppy. Rin, thank you very much for that reporting. Title 42 expires tomorrow. According to President Biden, it's, quote, going to be chaotic for a while. Now, you'll recall this is the pandemic era border policy that allowed border authorities to quickly deport certain migrants. U.S. officials estimate more than 150,000 migrants are camped out along the southern border right now. DHS officials tell CNN border officials encountered 10,000 migrants yesterday alone. CNN's David Culver is in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. And David, your reporting down there has been very eye-opening. What are you seeing and hearing today as we get closer to this deadline? It's interesting, Phil, you mentioned President Biden warning about this being potentially chaotic. We saw some of that chaos play out a bit overnight. We were actually monitoring a lot of the, the border wall here. And what you're looking at while we're on the Mexico side is the U.S. side. That's technically U.S. soil, where you see a lot of the migrants behind me just waking up in the morning chill here in Ciudad Juarez. And while they're on U.S. soil, they still haven't been processed to the other side of the border wall. What we saw overnight was an increased presence of Texas National Guard, a mix of, from what we could see, also U.S. Army soldiers. And it seemed at one point they were going to push those migrants back onto the Mexico side. Now, that didn't happen. And so then you saw migrants thinking, well, maybe they're going to process us. But that adds to this confusion, and it's confusion that's been playing out over several months, and it's led to, at moments, some excitement, some hope, and then disappointment as they realize they're still here, still waiting, and really amidst really tough conditions. Echoing across the sandy landscape on the U.S. southern border, young voices shouting for water. Already on Texas soil, technically, having already illegally crossed the Rio Grande, hundreds of migrants camp out between the barbed wire and the border wall, waiting to be processed for asylum. Title 42 still in effect. For this group, that means they could be immediately expelled by U.S. border officials. The pandemic-era policy offering no guarantees for their asylum claims to be heard. If it expires Thursday... Title VIII takes over, requiring asylum officers to process each claim, potentially overwhelming border officials already strained. Worsening this humanitarian crisis, the heat, some 90 degrees at midday. 
You see people bundled up in winter coats and blankets, useful for the night chill and to shield themselves from the scorching sun. We watch some Mexican locals arrive to help the group of migrants, mostly from other parts of Latin America. They carry boxes of pizza, bags of snacks, water, and soda. But it's not a handout. They sell them to desperate customers, who then crawl back under the barbed wire with their purchase, as others wait for their fill. But this, only a small portion of the tens of thousands in Ciudad Juarez determined to cross. Near to the city center, scenes similar to what's already happening, and perhaps more of what's to come in U.S. border towns. So for those migrants here in Ciudad Juarez who aren't in a shelter and aren't camping out along the border, some of them are just trying to find places to call home for a few days, a few weeks. One young woman told me she's been here six months. We're essentially in a construction zone that's been an abandoned building turned into a makeshift shelter of sorts. A lot of tents around me. Some have used blankets to cordon off certain areas and then put a mattress if they're lucky or just some bedding on the floor. Then you look around on the outside and you can see clothes hanging up. This is where they've set themselves up ahead of any potential crossing. This is more migrants by the hundreds, if not thousands, arrive hourly into this Mexican border city. Long, dangerous journeys behind them. And by no means is this their last stop. They crowd around a hose of running water to wash up and drink. This man skipping the line, going to the source, bathing under the leak. Back at the wall, rumblings of hope. A truck from the U.S. side approaches, water shooting from the sides, helping to cool the hot sand, but also sparking false hope. Some in the crowd rush to fill their empty bottles, as others warn it's not for drinking. That doesn't quench desperation. I think one of the visuals we have as we see a lot of the crowds building up, many migrants coming here to Ciudad Juarez and along the Mexico border with anticipations and hopes to eventually cross is that there's this massive wave and that it's going to all come down tomorrow. But in talking to a lot of these migrants, Phil, you realize they're not looking at tomorrow necessarily as the date that they're going to cross. It's very individualized. Many of them plan perhaps to try tomorrow, maybe today, maybe in a few weeks. It's determined by their own situation. So while we may see a surge, it could be really just wave after wave after wave rather than one massive tidal wave that I think a lot of us are envisioning with the crowds that we see on the side. David Culver, great reporting. Thanks so much. Republican County officials in two upstate New York communities are continuing to push back against New York City Mayor Eric Adams. They have declared a state of emergency in hopes of stopping the mayor's plan to send hundreds of asylum seekers to hotels in their counties. Listen to this. We are not going to accept what essentially is a New York City shelter here in Rockland County. And in point of fact, what they're trying to do, the way it's been described uh, secondhand, is against the zoning laws of, of the town of Orangetown. And there'll be a court case there. And frankly, it, you, you, if, if you force the issue, what's happening is the law is being broken here. So that's, that's, a, that's a criminal event. We'll talk about that in a lot more with Republican Congressman Mike Lawler. His district covers Rockland County, that executive of Rockland you just heard from. It's one of the suburban communities. It's been critical of Mayor Adams' plan. It's good to have you, Congressman. Thanks so much.
You as well. Thanks for having me, Poppy. Do you agree with the county executive we just heard from, or is there a role that Rockland and the communities in your district can and should play in taking in some of these migrants? I agree with the county executive. Rockland County is not a sanctuary county. New York City chose to be a sanctuary city back in 2016. When Southern state governors who were overwhelmed and inundated uh, over the last two years chose to send migrants up to New York City, Eric Adams called it morally bankrupt uh, that they were doing that without coordination and cooperation with city officials. He's now doing the very thing he decried by dictating to these municipalities that they're going to drop off hundreds, if not thousands of migrants uh, into their communities without any coordination or cooperation. Rockland County's homeless population is uh, roughly 70 people. This would be five times that, that the mayor is seeking Mm -hmm. to drop off into this one hotel in Rockland County. They do not have the resources nor capabilities Mm -hmm. uh, with their social service departments, with our nonprofit agencies to handle this massive influx. By the way, I would just point out, we've already in Rockland County taken in many migrants. Our one school district, East Round Post Central School District, took in a thousand migrant students this past September. So this is not a situation where we are not participating or not helping where we can. But the county does not have the capabilities of New York City to handle this. And New York City just got a billion dollars in the state budget. That's right. uh, By the governor to handle this. A billion dollars. And it is New York City that is funding what would take place in Rockland County. Except for for four months. And the problem is for four months, Poppy. And we asked them on a conference call yesterday. Mm -hmm. I asked the mayor's office after the four months, who's paying for it? And they said, well, we'll try and round them up and bring them back to New York City. And I said, well, if they choose not to come back to New York City, who's paying for it? Congressman. I said, we don't know. New York City. That's unacceptable. New York City has processed some 60,000 migrants since last spring. 40,000 remain in New York City. And Mayor Adams is talking about starting off with 30 migrants getting up to 340, which is the number that you cited, and they're paying for it. Just to to put a button on this issue, is there no role in which you believe the counties in your district can help, especially when it is being funded for this four-month period, at least, by the city of New York? Respectfully, I think you're simplifying the issue here. Number one, uh, the mayor is saying, we're going to start out with 30, get up to 340. They want to fill the hotel, which can handle 340 people very quickly. And they said this is a pilot program, which means this is the beginning, not the end. Uh, so you're talking about hundreds, if not thousands more coming into the county. This is their initial uh, decision that they're looking to do. In addition, as the county executive pointed out, the hotel does not have a CO to operate as a shelter. So to turn a hotel, which can only take transient residents for up to 30 days, into a four-month shelter that houses 340 people, provides health care, laundry services, food, and living, uh, is totally unacceptable. In addition, what happens during the day with these folks? They can't get a job. They can't get access to employment. And so who's actually taking care of them? This hotel is within a mile of two universities and a high school. And you're talking about sending single male adults up here. It is totally unacceptable the way the mayor has handled this and the way the city has without any coordination or cooperation uh, and communication well in advance. They knew they were doing this 
and chose not to discuss it with town and county officials until the very moment that they were looking to send them here. There's a temporary restraining order in place barring the hotel uh, from accepting them because it's in violation of the town code. So we'll see what happens, but I don't see this uh, going well given the way the mayor and the governor have handled it. On the debt ceiling, President Biden is coming to your district to speak later today about these debt ceiling negotiations that admittedly by both sides went nowhere yesterday at that critical meeting at the White House. Um, and Speaker McCarthy was asked point blank, do you think America will default on its debt? And he said, I don't know. Can you, Representative, guarantee your constituents that America will not default on its debt this summer, maybe as early as June 1st? So, Poppy, throughout this entire discussion, I've had three parameters. The president must negotiate with the speaker and the Senate majority leader. We must cut spending and we must not default. Those have been my three parameters throughout. It's why I'm going to the president's speech today mm -hmm. in my district uh, to hear what he has to say, uh, but also to take the opportunity to make the point to him uh, that we have to work together. All of us have a responsibility. You know, Speaker McCarthy asked the president to meet they met back in February, and then it took 97 days for the president to accept another meeting. Uh, that is totally unacceptable. The and the day after this meeting, now he's coming to my district to decry uh, the, the, the um, quote-unquote MAGA Republicans holding the country hostage. That is not the way you deal with this. And the president, as vice president, negotiated with House Republicans previously. And that's what he should do again. He did. And, and, and the argument from the White House would be they, they learned a lot from what devolved after those negotiations in 2011. But just to get a yes or no answer, can you guarantee your constituents that we will not default this summer at this point? Or are you like McCarthy? I don't no. know. I, uh, look, I am fully committed to making sure that we do not default. We cannot default. Okay. All of us have an obligation to negotiate. And I'll just point out, House Republicans are the only ones who have passed a bill to raise the debt ceiling. Chuck Schumer could say till he's blue in the face that he wants to pass a clean debt ceiling. He doesn't have mm -hmm. the votes to do that. You and so everybody has an obligation to put their big boy pants on and negotiate. <laughs> Let's talk about George Santos. Uh, he's going to be in court possibly as early as today, and federal charges against him will be unsealed. Look, you have long called for him to step down. You reiterated that in a press release from your office yesterday. What should Kevin McCarthy do? What do you want the speaker to do of your party? Look, I have said uh, repeatedly that George Santos should resign, uh, and he should. Uh, his conduct is unbecoming, it's embarrassing, and it's disgraceful. Uh, we'll see what the charges are today. Uh, I know the speaker was asked about it yesterday. He made clear uh, that, you know, he has a, a, a view on this. No, that this is a all process. he said. Let me play uh, it for our viewers. This is all he said. Here it is. Yep. I'll look at the charges. Yes. Should he do more than look at the charges? No, there was... The uh, respectfully, Poppy, he had a press conference later in the day and he was asked uh, further about it. And he and he went in to explain uh, the process that he has employed in the past when members have been charged. Uh, he's allowed them to go through uh, the criminal uh, process, uh, but he has removed them from committees. George Santos is not sitting on committees. Uh, and so obviously uh, he will not be participating in any committees. Uh, that's the speaker's process. My belief is that George Santos needs to go. Uh, he needs to resign. I've said that repeatedly. 
uh, and believe if he had any decency or dignity, he would. Uh, we will see how this plays out, but obviously he's not long for this world uh, in terms of being in elected office. Uh, and so it's frankly a matter of time. We'll see. He's, he is planning to run again. Before you go, I do want um, to ask you about the federal jury here in New York yesterday finding former President Trump sexually abused and defamed the writer E. Jean Carroll. Uh, the jury awarded her a $5 million verdict for battery and defamation. Does this make you unwilling to support President Trump in 2024? You know, I, I said on your show the day after the election that I'd like to see the party move uh, in a different direction. Uh, I think we need a robust uh, primary process. Ultimately, the Republican uh, voters in the primary will determine who our nominee is. Uh, but the former president has a lot of legal challenges uh, afoot, you know, including obviously yesterday's verdict, um, other investigations, charges that have been brought in New York City. Uh, and he needs to answer for it. And I'm sure uh, Caitlin will ask him about it tonight. Uh, and he should answer for uh, these charges that have been brought. If he's your party's nominee, will you support him and vote for him? Look, I, I'd like to see a robust uh, primary process. I've said in the past, and I reiterate again, I'd like to see the party move in a different direction. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm not going to talk about hypotheticals of where we are. At the end of the day, um, you know, the Republican Party needs to be focused on the future and focused on the challenges facing the American people uh, and not perceive grievances of the past or uh, legal challenges facing uh, a candidate. Congressman Mike Waller, thank you for being on on such an important day, especially in your district. I know you'll be with the president a little later today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Bill. A New York jury has found former President Donald Trump liable for sexually abusing and defaming writer E. Jean Carroll. He's been ordered to pay $5 million in damages. E. Jean Carroll is here with us live in studio for her first CNN interview since the verdict. Stay tuned. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Look at that. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Quote, the world finally knows the truth. That statement coming from writer E. Jean Carroll after she won her civil lawsuit against Donald Trump. A federal jury in Manhattan found that Trump sexually abused Carroll in a department store dressing room in the 90s and then defamed her by denying her claim. Trump has been ordered to pay Carroll $5 million, the former president reacting to the ruling on his Truth Social platform. Listen to this. What else can you expect from a Trump-hating, Clinton-appointed judge who went out of his way to make sure that the result of this trial was as negative as it could possibly be, speaking to and in control of a jury from an anti-Trump area, which is probably the worst place in the United States for me to get a fair trial? We'll be appealing this decision. It's a disgrace. We should note it was an anonymous jury. Joining us now is Eugene Carroll and her attorney, Roberta Kaplan. Welcome to CNN This Morning. We're glad you're here. Well, thank you for having us. We'll all remember that you said, Eugene, I'm trying to get my life back. Yes. I'm here to try to get my life back. That was it, why. Yesterday was so, I was such a happy woman. I felt like we had accomplished that. You did? Yeah. Can you talk about what you were thinking as uh, the jury's decisions were read off in oh. your mind. <laughs> we were sitting there like this, 
Robbie's hand, it was like holding a block of ice. <laughs> and we didn't have any idea what the jury was going to do. Uh, the former president is incorrect. Uh, the jury was not from Manhattan. Where was it from, Robbie? Mostly um, Westchester and North. Yeah. Uh, and six men, three women. Uh, his kind of jury, actually. And so when the verdict came in, she squeezed my hand so hard, I almost yelped. But it was a great moment. What about when that first finding was found? This jury found that Trump did not rape you. What about that moment? Robbie can explain the legal. Sure. And, and I want you sure. to. But I just wonder, Eugene, what went through your head when you heard that? Well, I just immediately say in my own head, oh, yes, he did. Oh, yes, he did. See, that's my response. So look, New York law on sexual crimes like this is complicated, and it's not probably appropriate for morning viewers. But the truth of the matter is, is that sexual abuse, which he was found guilty of, is a very, very serious offense. I'm not going to get into the body part situation with you, but it's a, people go to jail for sexual abuse. It's a very serious offense. And most importantly, E. Jean brought this case because she wanted her name back. As you said at the very beginning, she got her name back, and the jury found that he lied. And he lied about her maliciously. I don't think anybody was surprised by some of the stuff we heard from the former president last night. Obviously, you addressed him talking about the jury. Um, another thing that he and his lawyers have often spoken about is the, the lack of disclosure about a, a big Democratic donor funding part of this case. Was, was there a reason it wasn't disclosed? And did you view this as political in any way? No. Uh, I just completely forgot. I just completely forgot uh, that he even existed. In your deposition? Yes, in my de deposition. Because Trump lawyers have called that, Roberta, a sign of bias. It raises questions about the motives of bringing this case. And I wonder what the reaction is. So every single witness, every one of those 11 witnesses who testified in this case, testified under oath and told the truth, not because they don't like Trump, but because it was the truth. That's right. what this case was about. Who was telling the truth? The jury decided that E. Jean was telling the truth. And there may be of witnesses who don't like Trump. There may have been jurors, as Joe Takapina said in his opening, who don't like Trump. But that process was about the truth under the law, and that's what the jury found. I don't want to make this a political conversation, but the kind of dissonance between the moment yesterday on the front pages of all the newspapers, all um, the getting your life back, something you've been thinking about and going through for decades, and then at the same time looking over and seeing that that man is also the front runner for the Republican nomination for president. And you listen to Republicans who were asked about this yesterday, and it's some version of what we heard for six years prior. Don't want to talk about it. Dodge, say there's something corrupt about the process. Well, how do you kind of oh, I think, reconcile that moment, I guess? Uh, here's how I reckon it. Yesterday, the old view of what the perfect victim looks like totally changed. What do you mean? The old view of the perfect victim was a woman who always screamed, a woman who immediately reported, a woman whose life is supposed to fold up and she's never supposed to experience happiness again. That was just shut down uh, with this verdict. Uh, uh, the death of the perfect victim has happened. Now, uh, this uh, verdict... Um, is for all women. This is not really about me. It's for every single woman. There uh, in the courtroom was uh, an encounter, an exchange between you and the president's lawyer, Joe Tacopino. Mm -hmm. He came up, you shook hands, I mm -hmm. believe. 
What did he say? Well, he, Joe Tacopini is very likable. He's sort of like an 18th century strutting peacock. And he's, people like him. So when he sticks out his hand to congratulate, first he congratulated Robbie, and then he was congratulating people on the team. And as I put my hand forward, I said, he did it, and you know it. And then we shook hands, and I passed did on. Did he say anything in response? No, he, he's, a, he's a hail fellow well met. He went on shaking hands and smiling. The response you got afterwards, you know, you're making the point, this is for all women. I, I think that there were a significant number of women uh, who were certainly behind you in the case, who uh, backed you in the case. In the hours since, I don't think you've had a lot of time uh, to check your phone or, or calls or emails. What's the response been, given what you were laying out in terms of the perfect victim being shattered? There are no words. There are no words. I just now saw the headlines. Um, we are, I'm really sort of um, uh, taking in the moment and the overwhelming flood of a lot of hate. That's part of it. Uh, but an overwhelming amount of relief and joy and, and at, the feeling of at last and the, uh, uh, the surge of there's a sort of a feeling of victory that at last somebody has held him accountable in a courtroom, thanks to Robbie Kaplan. So it's, this, it's such a, a mash of overwhelming emotions, it's hard to put into words. What about appeals? We heard the president say they'll appeal. Our Paula Reed, uh, with her brilliant legal analysis on the program earlier, talked about that that's going to be this is a tough appeal to make. And what, what would the grounds be when the Trump team didn't present a defense and he didn't step foot in that courtroom? Yeah. So your you, perspective? You heard Donald Trump in the tapes say that the judge here, Judge Kaplan, no relation to me, went out of his way to be unfair. Actually, the opposite is true. Judge Kaplan, in this case, went out of his way to be fair to Donald Trump. He gave him multiple opportunities to show up in that courtroom and testify, and Donald Trump decided not to. There are no issues in this case on appeal. They'll make them, but there are no serious issues on this appeal, and your colleague is absolutely right. If Trump had come into... Well, first, do you wish he had come? Yeah, I do. And what would you have said? I would have loved to have seen Robbie put him on the stand. Loved it. I just would have loved it. Uh... If you've seen any portions of the deposition, that was Robbie doing the question. We have. It would have been a glorious moment. However, he was, I think he was frightened. I think he was frightened. I think he was frightened of her. What's next? I mean, this has to be an all-consuming. I'm going to go get a dog for my dog. Because I've been, so he needs somebody to play with. So I'm going to get a dog. I'm going to go to the pound, get a nice dog for my dog. $5 million. Are you going to see it? Oh, I, you know what? I was even unaware of how much it was. Robbie had to tell me, um, this is not about the money. Not about the money. This is accomplishing something that I set out to do uh, many years ago is to get my name back. And that's what we did. But you will see it. I that's promise what I was gonna you, ask. I'm going to ask you next. That's a lawyer. <laughs> I promise you that E. Jean will see each and every penny of that $5 million. Can I end on something that I think um, is really important in all of this? And it's the fact that New York passed this law. Yeah. The Adult Survivors Act. They passed it just a few years ago. Were it not for that law, you never would have been able to bring this case. And I just think it speaks to the importance for a lot of other survivors. Exactly. This would never, I would never have this window, this year, 
of having the ability uh, to bring a lawsuit for rape. Robbie can explain it better. Well, EGN actually helped to get that law passed. It passed last year. Uh, we filed, uh, it was Thanksgiving Day, it was the first day you could sue. We filed just after midnight on Thanksgiving. And uh, there are a lot of other women throughout the state and hopefully throughout this country that they will get other laws like this passed in other states. And New York women should use this law while it's still around, which is until next Thanksgiving. Yeah, because there's a reason women stay silent. They're ashamed and they're frightened and they're worried about their kids. This law gives us that one year window. It's a brilliant law. Eugene Carroll, Roberta Kaplan, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, new federal recommendations that teenagers undergo training before using social media. Plus, what a new poll reveals about how much children are already using AI and what parent, that's terrifying, and what parents should know. I know. The results may surprise you. We're worried for our, yeah. for our kids. Welcome back. First on CNN, as AI chatbots become more powerful, and a bigger part of our lives, a major new poll finds parents are lagging behind their children on technology. I know that's not a surprise, but we're going to tell you why it's concerning. The survey from Common Sense Media reveals that while both groups feel optimistic about the potential for AI, only 30% of parents say they've used ChatGPT. I have not. Have you? I have. Okay, at least Phil not has. well. But... Compared to 58% of students between ages 12 and 18. Another key finding Kids are using it without their parents' or their teachers' knowledge, and students who use ChatGPT for school are already three times more likely to use it than a search engine like Google. Last week, the White House announced a series of measures to address the challenges of AI, as some lawmakers are calling for regulation. Listen to this from Democratic Senator Michael Bennett, what he told us. We are having an epidemic of adolescent mental health issues in America today. I'm not saying that's all social media's responsibility, but a huge piece of that is, and they've gone completely unregulated here. Let's talk to Jim Steyer, CEO and the founder of Common Sense Media. They commissioned this survey about all of this. It's a national nonprofit and it advocates for safe technology and media for kids and their families. Jim, it's good to have you. Good morning. Great to be here, Poppy. What's the big takeaway? The big takeaway is that chat GPT and AI is coming down the tracks like a freight train. It's going to be a huge issue in our kids' lives. And we parents have to get to know what's going on here because it's really going to affect kids' lives, but also how they perform in school. And right now, kids know a lot more about us than, our, than parents like you and me know. Uh, I refuse to acknowledge that my children are better at technology than I am, <laughs> as inevitable as it is. But it, it, it is an interesting question in the sense of the velocity of the take-up of ChatGPT is unprecedented. You're talking like 100 million people. Kids are obviously involved in that. When it comes to school, which is, I think was my first immediate concern, what are we seeing in terms of the ability to utilize this in the near term immediately on assignments, on studying, on cheating to some degree? Mm -hmm. Well... Phil, it's a great question because seriously, ChatGPT and other forms of AI will transform your kids, my kids, Poppy kids' education in the coming years. It makes them able to write essays, to do research much more quickly, even than current search does. So it's going to change the way they get educated. Uh, but, the, but as you mentioned, parents are really concerned that kids can cheat with it, 
could become too dependent on it as opposed to doing the work themselves. And so we are going to have to make sure that as these major new AI platforms like ChatGPT come into massive use, that there are clear rules, that schools know how they're being used, and quite frankly, that parents like you and me and Poppy also manage this in our kids' lives. And we have to get comfortable with ChatGPT and other platforms, period. I, th I think we have to manage it. Parents have a big responsibility in this. I totally agree. Schools, to an extent. I also think companies have a responsibility. And I'm interested in what you think about what Sam Altman, the uh, CEO and founder of OpenAI, told my friend, Rebecca Jarvis. She sat down with him uh, for ABC News, and here's what he said to her. I think it doesn't work to do all this in a lab. You've got to get these products out into the world and, and make contact with reality, make our mistakes while the stakes are low. I think people should be happy that we're a little bit scared of this. He said, you can't figure it all out in a lab. You've got to release it to the world. What, what do you think? Really good question. So I met with Sam this week um, and we've been meeting. I've been meeting with the people who run Google, who are the other major player right now uh, with chatbots. And and I'm saying the very top people in the company. Number one, I think they realize this is going to have an incredible impact on society and particularly on young people. Number two, as Senator Bennett was saying in that clip earlier, there's our government is going to have to step up and regulate this. They failed to do that with social media, and we can see the results. But there's clearly going to have to be government regulation and leadership here. And right now, they're behind the eight ball again. But I do think it's going to be incumbent upon OpenAI, that's Sam's company, and on Google and a couple of the other major players to rein this technology in and not to experiment with it too much. Hmm. And that is going to be relying, therefore, on the goodwill of large corporations. So that's why people like Common Sense Media are around, because we have to hold them accountable. And quite frankly, this is a major experiment on our kids' lives, on their education. And right now, it's being completely conducted by large companies. So we have to get involved as parents now. Well, look, you were the one who was in the room with Sam, with the Google execs. Did they tell you they would rein it in? Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google, told me in 2019, if AI gets too far ahead of us, we may have to pull it back, despite how profitable it could be. Did they make any commitments to you? You know, they, they did in a broad sense, Poppy. And honestly, I've, we've known Sam and also Satya Nadella, who runs Microsoft, who's the big funder of OpenAI, and Sundar and James Manyika, the head of AI at Google. I think they actually care about this. I feel more optimistic, honestly, that the folks who are running these big uh, AI platforms are concerned about the potential downsides and consequences than, for example, 15 years ago, when social media was introduced and you had Mark Zuckerberg running Facebook mm -hmm. and buying Instagram. I do think there is a greater sense of corporate social responsibility, but, and that's really important and we need to hold them to that. But at the same time, our government cannot continue to just live in a vacuum where they don't issue any kinds of regulatory structure because that leaves it essentially to the goodwill of corporations and then to parents like you and me and Phil. And I think that ultimately, this could be an extraordinary benefit for society, but the downsides are also extraordinary. So all of us have to get involved in this AI debate, and our government has to finally take the lead. I'm a little skeptical of us having a lot of eggs in the Congress doing things basket, <laughs> but Jim, this is fascinating. There's so I much agree. to learn and super important for every parent, every person. Thanks so much for being on. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for having me, guys. 
and released just moments ago. A key report on inflation, our business team crunching those numbers. We'll tell you what they found coming up next. Well, just moments ago, a key uh, report showing inflation slowing again in April. Let's get right to CNN's chief business correspondent, Christine Romans. Christine, how much? What went up fast is coming down very slowly. But this is more deceleration in the inflation story here. 4.9%. That is the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, over the past year. It was 5% last month. So you can see a little bit better. And then month on month, 0.4%. This is pretty much right in line, maybe even a little bit lighter than economists had been expecting. And you can see the trend. I love to show the trend is your friend in all of these numbers. Never take just one of these numbers. Take a look, take a look at them together. And you can see that we've seen peaking in the inflation story. This is the smallest 12-month increase in two years now. That's good news. Ten months in a row of just a little bit of deceleration. So these prices are still too high, no question. And when you look within these numbers, shelter was 60% of it. Shelter, that's a sticky, we call it sticky inflation. Uh, You also saw gas prices, used car prices were up. So those are some of the biggest categories that we saw. Still have a lot of work to do. The Fed would like to see 2% inflation. So 4.9% is still too hot, Um, but slowing, slowing and slowing slowly. I think it shows you that the Fed's rate hikes are working, um, but again, coming down much more slowly than they went up in terms of price increases. Well, Donald Trump found liable for sexual abuse and defamation. That's just one of the negative headlines he's seen in recent months. But new polling suggests Republican voters might not care. Perry Enten is here with this morning's number. As we've been reporting, a federal jury in New York found Donald Trump liable for sexually abusing and defaming writer E. Jean Carroll. And that's just one bad headline. In the last few months, he's also doubled down on what he said on the Access Hollywood tape. Federal investigators have escalated their probe into his handling of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. He's facing growing legal scrutiny over his role in trying to overturn the 2020 election. Oh, also, he's been charged with 34 felony counts of falsifying business records. But this should be familiar. Polling suggests Trump is still the GOP frontrunner, and we're going to need to know why. And that's why we have this individual who's going to tell us exactly why. Senior data reporter Harry Hinton. What's up? All right. So this morning's number is... Three. Why? Because Trump has led Biden nationally in three ABC News Washington Post polls this cycle. He led in zero national polls that, are, that CNN would put on air during the entire 2020 cycle. So Biden clearly in a weaker position versus Trump than he was four years ago. Yet, you know, I have to point out something. I don't like to just w- look at one poll singularly. I like to look at a lot of them. So Biden versus Trump nationally recently. This ABC News Washington Post poll got a lot of play with Trump up six. But look at these other ones. Ipsos, Biden plus five. Wall Street Journal, Biden plus three. Quinnipiac, Biden plus two. But on the whole, I think the picture should say that if you thought that Joe Biden was going to run away with the 2024 election, that's not the case at this point. It looks very, very tight, guys. And at the top of his party for Trump. That's exactly right. So take a look at this trend line, the top choices for GOP nominee. And look at what's going on here. We got Donald Trump. We got Ron DeSantis. Back in January, look at that. Trump was up by only 
11 points, and he was only at 43%. Jump ahead to March, 45% to 28. Look now, on average, Trump has a 30-point advantage, over 50%. And I want to give you an indication of how strong that is looking forward, right? Because polls are just a snapshot in time. But look at those who polled near or better than Trump's level at this point in non-incumbent primaries. Bob Dole, 96, won the nomination. George W. Bush in 2000, won the nomination. Al Gore in 2000, won the nomination. Hillary Clinton in 2016, won the nomination. So people polling in Trump's position have generally gone on to win the nomination. And I'll point out one little last nugget. Members of Congress or governors endorsing Trump. So far in the 2024 cycle, more than 60. In the entire 2016 primary season, just 15. So the fact is Trump has very good polling. He has the backing of a lot of members of his party. At this point, the Trump train looks very difficult to stop. But of course, we still have many months to go until it's the very primary. very early. Can I just point out one thing, though? Ooh, someone's competing with Look you at, on the magic What is it? Can we zoom in on this source? <laughs> Harry's aggregate. Is this like a secret internal system that we don't know about? Because I, I saw that. I was like, whoa, I kind of want to know what that is, but I also don't want to know what that is. A chef never reveals his recipes. Okay. Harry Hinton, you're the best, as always. Thank and you. your aggregate. Thanks so much. Thanks, Harry. A reminder, Caitlin will moderate an exclusive CNN town hall with former President Trump. That airs tonight live from New Hampshire, 8 p.m. Eastern. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you here tomorrow. CNN News Central is right after this. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcast at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.